As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. We have had in a very eventful week one. Um, you were at two games. We were together, even though if we didn't see each other. At the, at honestly, the biggest game of the weekend, or at least the most, uh, the most compelling game of the weekend. The, the game I think we will remember and be talking about for a long time. And we're going to get into the game you were at uh, Sunday night, which was LSU getting whipped by Florida State. And we'll get into a bunch of other stuff. The Pac-12, um, a pretty impressive opening weekend and not so impressive opening weekend for the SEC. A lot to get into, Stu, but a 20 and a half point underdog and Deion Sanders did everything he said his program was going to do and everything everybody else thought his program couldn't do. What do you think now? I was thinking about this some more this morning, and it's truly, I think, one of the most stunning game results I've seen in college football. Not Appalachian State over Michigan. I wasn't at that game, but obviously, you know, apples and oranges. But in terms of we spent eight, nine months talking about this guy and this unprecedented roster uh, turnover. You've spent a lot of time, David Oven, who was there for us, who's been tracking Dion's every move, talked to opposing coaches. No one thought it was going to work this quickly. The night before the game, while you were off hobnobbing with your, you know, A-listers or wherever you were, and I was at dinner with David and, and Chris Vanini, who lives in Dallas, I won't say who brought it up, but the notion that this could be an IMG Academy versus Bishop Sycamore type result came up. Obviously, that was not it at all. And, you know, I'm usually the, the king of don't overreact to one week. I don't care in this case. They were 1-11 last year. They were non-competitive in, in almost all of their games. It was a completely different team. They're playing a team in TCU that was in the national championship game last year. And, you know, Shador Sanders breaks the school record for passing yards. They have four 100-yard receivers. A freshman running back scores four touchdowns. And I'm going to say it, they outcoached Sean D- Dion, Sean Lewis, the offensive coordinator, outcoached Sonny Dykes' staff that 
took a team to the national championship game last year. So it doesn't get much more stunning than that. No, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say they outcoached them. They outplayed them. They out everything them. Um, to me, there was about eight different remarkable things that happened there. Um, the first to me, honestly, is Travis Hunter. And I've seen all different stat counts of how many plays he actually was on the field for. I've seen the official number, I believe, was 119. I've seen one. No, sorry, 129. I've seen 134. I think Pro Football Focus had it at 134. Um, anything over 100 in near 100 degree heat, and I was on the field for a while, it was sweltering hot to play the way he played. And I even thought about this. Um, I was on the field with with, with another guy I know um, who works in football, and we observed that you know, they, they, a couple times it was just, Hey, we're going to run a go route opposite Travis Hunter. He's going to have to go chase. And then we're going to bring in our better receiver. The next play, you know, it's almost like, Hey, we're going to wear these guys out. He never wore down. In fact, he got better as the game went on the interception he made in the red zone. The reaction, um, is just, was a remarkable play to see it and trigger and make that happen. I mean, you know, we can we can get caught up in what guys do on a 40, what guys do on a shuttle time. The ability to see something and make a play on it, have the ball skills to do all this and the body control, that's special. And that's that's honestly why um, you know, why Deion Sanders getting him in the first place. I mean, you know, obviously I was skeptical that they could you know, that they were going to be a team that could win more than four games coming into this. But the one thing in the back of my head, and I know we've talked about this and I'd written about this once this offseason was nobody thought Deion Sanders was going to get Travis Hunter to go to a FCS program when he was the number one recruit in the country. And he did. And he's done a lot of things throughout his life. And anybody, you know, I, as you said, I don't know if these are not, these are definitely not A-listers, by the way, but the people I work with who have worked with him at NFL Network and have been around him, um, some of them, you know, some of them are like, like Rich Eisen, they are so believers in Dion because they've seen Dion away from the cameras and they've seen that I feel like a lot of us and you, you really only get a lot, you get a chunk of this on social media and there's a lot of social media because CU's all in on it is I think we get it twisted where it's more style than substance. What we don't, what you seldom get to see on that is this real substance part. And, you know, Sean Lewis had an, had a, you know, a terrific game plan. I think that ha the fact that, you know, the, the second most amazing thing beyond the Travis Hunter part to me was that the offensive line, which almost entirely, you know, was formed post spring football played as well as it did and held up as well as it did. And Sonny Dykes told, told me, you know, the day before the game, he thought their defensive line was going to be much improved. I mean, it didn't look like it, you know, in this game. He, they exploited some very good defensive backs. Um, it's just, again, overreaction, whatever. Like, this is going to be one of the most memorable games because, um, because of everything that was going into it and the fact that, you know, we saw just – just a truly remarkable show by Colorado. And look, it may turn out that, you know, t I, I, I think back to the Texas is back game against Notre Dame, uh, which was, uh, you know, uh, a classic. And then it proved to be deceiving because Notre Dame ended up going four and eight that year. Well, let's say that happens with TCU, right? They overachieved to get the national championship game last year. Maybe they underachieved this year. 
I don't care. <laughs> I really don't. Last year, Colorado couldn't compete with, you know, mediocre to bad teams in the Pac-12. And you're right. The, we knew they had high-end uh, skill players. I don't didn't anticipate seeing Shador throw for 500 yards, but we knew he had loaded up there. Offensive line is what I thought was going to be the big offensive and defensive line. Offensive line, though. And so what you saw early in the game was a lot of quick releases by Shador, either quick release or, you know, get out as quickly as possible from uh, from the box. And and at first we were a little puzzled, like, why are TCU's corners playing so far back? If We thought they were going to do that and they are doing that. But once they hooked them into that, then it was all downfield or almost all downfield. And, um, you know, people doubted Shador because he had played in a, uh, in a, in a you know, small private school in Dallas and high school and an HBCU the last couple of years. Uh, he joins the rank. We're going to talk a little bit about the PAC 12 in a bit, but he joins the ranks of the upper echelon quarterbacks in that conference. Um, Dion, to your point about people, everybody doubting Dion. And I certainly did. I was at his press conference, his, which was an, uh, an interesting glimpse into how he gets portrayed once the quotes start going viral. But I thought the most key line he said was, we're going to continue to be questioned because we do things that have never been done. And that makes people uncomfortable. You know, it's true. Um, Even though he won a a lot of games in his previous coaching stop, even though obviously an extremely accomplished professional athlete, he's just different. He talks differently than other coaches. He operates differently than other coaches. And so I think, not just in football, but in life, when somebody comes in and they're so different, your instinct is be like, well, that's not going to work. You can't be that disruptive. You can't be that different than the, than the crowd. But um, what I was going to say about the press conference is, first of all, it's unlike any other post-game press conference you're going to be at because it, it, <laughs> it was hard at times to tell who, the, who were the reporters and who were the people that work for Dion or work for the program. He's got three different YouTube channels going on. He's got all these people filming him at every moment. And, you know, he walks in there. I kept receipts. I got the receipts. Um, but the thing is, it's all lighthearted. And so there was this moment where Ed Werder, everybody knows Ed Werder from ESPN, goes to ask a question. And Dion cuts him off immediately and says, no, 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 no. You didn't believe. Do you, you know, do you believe now? And he just kept pressing on it. Do you believe now? So that quote was, that, that clip goes viral. People don't know who the reporter is. They don't realize it's, a TV guy who Dion's probably known since he was a NFL player. Ed Werder hasn't written a word about Colorado. There's no, there's no way there's some press clipping out there of him questioning Dion or questioning Colorado. It was an act. It was, it was, you know, lighthearted, but then it makes the rounds on Twitter. And it's like beat writers shouldn't be having to you know, root for a team. And he's overshadowing the performance of his players. No, he's got in that press conference and said, I got two players who should be front runners for the Heisman. He was definitely pumping up his players. So um, you are going to now get, you have to see him this past week. Now you're going to turn around this week. And we talked about it at the time, Fox made a big bet on Dion going big new in the first two weeks. Now that looks kind of genius because a lot of people that wouldn't have thought to watch a Colorado Nebraska game in week two, and, and including a Nebraska team that did not look good at all in their first game, a lot of people are going to be tuned in to see if he can do it again. Yeah, Dion and Colorado are the biggest story in sports right now, and they're going to be leading up to you know in opening. sports. Yeah, in all of sports. 
What's that? The NFL yeah. opens this coming weekend. Till NFL is going to open Sunday. Till yeah. that time, Dion and Colorado are what people are buzzing about. Yeah. Well, you may be right. We'll see when all the debate shows start up again on Tuesday morning. What they're talking about? Debate shows. Yeah. Set. I mean, all the debate shows are going to try to find a way to talk about LeBron and talk about you know whatever. But look, um, I can tell you this. We've spent eight months. David Oven was was doing most of it, but lots of others like yourself chipped in. We've spent eight months relentlessly writing about Dion. And at times you would see in the comments, you know, I'm sick of this. When are you guys going to stop doing it? People read the heck out of those stories. There was already huge curiosity about him. And now this is just going to take it up, ratchet it up to another level. Um, Can I have something, Stu, on this yeah. premise? And it's something I thought about a bunch. And it's it's this element. Um, and I don't know if, I don't want to say it's tied into like, you know, the element of like sports writers, where did you play? What do you know? Or whatever. Cause the truth of the matter is there is almost nobody who was as great a football player as Deion Sanders, who's talking about, you know, football doesn't mean they they're, you know, Dan Orlovsky played in the NFL a long time. He wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't a very successful, you know, he was a relatively forgettable um, on the field career, but he's got a lot of insight and everything else. And what I find though comp- compelling is with Dion, y- you know, I do think there's something about like, you guys don't know because like there's some, some level of, of understanding maybe. And I think he's able to uh, articulate it in a way that, that certainly other great players maybe haven't been able to, but to see the game differently to like, you know, because, you know, it's not like most of the greatest coaches in the history of football. If you look at the probably the greatest coach in the modern era of of the NFL is Bill Belichick. He was not a he was not anything close to a big time football player. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's no other NFL Hall of Fame players currently coaching a college, a major college football program. Like this is, no, this is you know, unprecedented. You know, a great player. He won a Super Bowl. Um, with the Bears, but you you just don't have like when you look at the greatest players and take Dion out of it for a second, who are like who are actually college co- coaches right now. Jim Harbaugh was a really good player. There aren't, and sometimes some of these guys you don't even know what is it that makes them. You know, we can all point to oh, that's why Lincoln Riley's that successful. That's why Nick Saban is that successful. With certain guys, you're like I don't even know why it, exactly it works for them, but clearly there is something so different here. Um, and that I got, I don't know. That's why I'm, I'm really fascinated. Now I would ask you this. So let's spin it forward a little bit. Um, how good can they be? Right. I mean, to think that, you know, if I had told you five days ago, what do you think if they win six games, that would have sounded like a big stretch. Now it sounds like, oh yeah, they should be able to win six games. I saw how well Shador throws and how poised he is. I saw how dynamic travis hunter is i saw jimmy horn i saw dylan edwards um i don't know like how how many games can they win since now you are a officially a believer yeah but i still have no idea i mean you just don't know right like i said was it deceiving um was you know i mean tcu had absolutely no tape of of the team you know they might have had let's go watch sean lewis's kent state team or whatever like maybe a week of tape uh helps nebraska um, and also we were going to talk about this a little bit later, but I don't know if you noticed, um, the PAC 12 was really good this year. They had, uh, over the weekend, they did not lose a game 
And on Saturday, their teams combined to score an average of 52.6 points per game. So everything you said about Colorado's arsenal is, is true. But Washington has a pretty good arsenal on offense. USC has a pretty good arsenal on offense. Oregon has a pretty like they're going to all. All I know is they're going to be very entertaining. You know, the notion that they were going to just be completely irrelevant by week three is off the table. They're going to play Nebraska, then they're going to play uh, Colorado State, and then they're going to play Oregon and USC. And if they're 3-0 and going into that stretch, everybody's going to watch those games to see how they stack up against these highly ranked teams from the Pac-12. So I'm sorry to dodge your question. I have no idea how many wins they'll get. It'll be, I know it'll be more than, than what I saw for them, which I think was 3-9. and nine. Yeah, I think the biggest question for me with them is, how well do they hold up depth-wise? We know yeah. they have really good frontline talent. We know Travis Hunter has an insane gas tank because we saw it on evidence. But just the idea of, you know, football is a, is a physical sport. And if, you know, if some of the key players go down, then, you know. Then, then it, it's going to be a big drop-off, I think. Yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So it's true. We were in the same town at the same game. We never actually saw each other. I did see you from upstairs for like five seconds running. What a no part of being on that field in that heat, did you? <laughs> not, not, not a chance. And you were in a suit. My God. Um, I, so I get up the next morning and I fly here to Orlando. Um, worked out very well. Everything was on time. And get down there to Camping World Stadium, which I had not been to in decades. The last time I was in that stadium, believe it or not, was as a college student when Northwestern played in the Citrus Bowl and got their butts kicked by Peyton Manning in Tennessee. Clearly a much different stadium now. There were so many Florida State fans. They, you know, they they go all out for these for this game in terms of like crazy outfits. I'm going through security and there's two guys in full um, uh, you know, what's this kind of sparkly body paint, you know, I'm talking about like full head to toe. Um, I think I may have seen a picture of those two guys with the, with the president or with the, actually with the AD of Florida state. There was an LSU fan who is basically just Elvis. He's an Elvis impersonator. Um, yeah, it was a lot. And then the game starts and the first half was crazy back and forth. Lots of, um, you know, you're seeing all the talent, you're seeing all the speed, but you're also seeing like a lot of really dumb mistakes, right? Florida State had uh, two personal fouls on the same, you know, back-to-back. I don't think they were back-to-back plays, but they were pretty close to each other. LSU has yet another muff punt against Florida State, though in the very next play, uh, Jordan Travis throws an interception. And then the second half comes, and Florida State runs them out of the stadium. 
it was a it was a statement performance for Florida State who you know you think about how low things got remember when they started 0 and 4 a couple years and lost to Jacksonville State that was only 2 years ago and Mike Norvell has built it up and built it up and you got to see you know Keon Coleman from Michigan State Jared Verse obviously we know, we know well at this point the FCS like there were just all of these guys making a huge impact across that game. Jaheim Bell, the tight end, who he picked up through the portal. It's not all portal guys. Those three standout receivers, Jaheim mm-hmm. Bell, um, you know, Jaheim Bell came from South Carolina. They obviously had Keon Coleman. Um, and it's really like all three guys are huge receivers and they're really athletic. And what we saw, I think, in that game um, Sunday night was LSU is not very good at cornerback right now. Like it, it used to be great at it. Obviously, now Corey Raymond doesn't coach there anymore. He's he's at another SEC school at Florida, but there is look like a you know a sizable drop off. And I think Florida, which State- you called by the way on this podcast last week, you predicted Florida State's win, and you said specifically because you didn't think LSU's DBs would match up with their receivers. No, and I, I mean, everything I'd heard was that was a big concern inside the LSU program. Um, and and they took transfers from there. And that, I don't know, that that came back to bite them. Obviously, they were not with their, their most talented defensive lineman, Mason Smith. He was sitting out for that one-game suspension. Um, you know, there was another element of this. I'm curious your thoughts. Like, the most impressive freshman in the country defensively last year was Harold Perkins. I don't want to say he was a non-factor. But he was not as disruptive because he was playing, you know, really spying Jordan Travis as opposed to as opposed to, you know, just coming in and flying in from both edges. Um, I felt like that is if you're an LSU fan, you're like, why, you know, why do we do that? I know that Brian Kelly was asked about it afterwards and he kind of didn't. I don't know. I The answer the answer he kind of gave was just kind of like, well, we're going to it's like a he's learning of- a new position. Yeah, um, which you know that was intentional. They they last year the way Brian Kelly described his role last year was basically see ball get ball right, just like pure athleticism go hit the quarterback. Um, they thought he would be uh, more effective or have a bigger impact as a line of scrimmage linebacker. And so here's the from PFF snap count last night: fifty eight total defensive snaps. 28 in coverage, 23 as a run defender, seven as a pass rusher. One of, one of the most, one of the scariest pass rushers in the country last year rushed the passer seven times. So as bad as that game was for LSU, I feel like there's a, you can at least say, well, maybe we could fix that. <laughs> maybe that was a bad move. Uh, you know, their running game was terrible, but they're going to, they had, they're missing two running backs who could have a big impact. I don't think... Like, They're actually three, three running backs. They're okay, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't throw in the towel on LSU, but this is a team that I fully bought in on and thought would reach the playoff. And you, you know, you don't usually see a team get blown out in the first game and turn around and have a great season. Uh, Oregon last year obviously could not have had a bigger Week One debacle against Georgia, turned around and won ten games. Expectations were higher though for this LSU team. This was, and we talked about it many times. There's your window. Um, you've got Jane Daniels, superstar quarterback. Well, not superstar quarterback, but standout quarterback. You've got, um, 
elite they receivers. Have, you know, they yep. have a, a offensive line that how has experience. It didn't really last year, but it does. Didn't show last night, but yes, very experienced offensive line. You know, the the, the tandem of Harold Perkins and Omar Spates at linebacker. So uh, this didn't make me think like, oh, they've got no players. Of course, they've got players. But it did made me rethink like, oh, you know, they're gonna, um, they're gonna win the West instead of Alabama. Uh, could happen. Feel a little less confident in it after Sunday night, but so I know you wrote about Brian Kelly. And I tweeted something at the end of the night, which kind of stayed with me. Where I think Brian Kelly's a really good coach. He's won a lot of football games. But the thing that has always kind of puzzled me a little bit with him is his teams get blown out more than any like you know top ten teams usually do. It's like not only. It's it's a weird mix. Like if you look at their year last year, they were ten and four. They were it was a it was a very good first season, right? Take out the Florida State game when the special teams melted down in the opener last year. But then you once you get to the middle of the season, you know the the high point is obviously beating Alabama last year in Baton Rouge at the end of the game. Um, you know, they had a win over an Ole Miss team where they thumped them, but Ole Miss wasn't even a ranked team by the end of the year. They just kind of, I don't think they were as anywhere near as good as people, you know, as their ranking said. But then you look at the rest of it. They get hammered at home, 40 to 13 at home by Tennessee. They get whipped pretty, pretty bad by a really bad Texas A&M team that didn't even make a bowl game. They get drilled by a really, you know, a great Georgia team. Uh, then they play Purdue and they blow them out in in that same stadium, the Camping World Stadium. And then they come out this year and they just get smashed by Florida State. Yep. I mean, so I went back and looked at this because I was like, am I imagining this? Or so, you know, the year his last year at Notre Dame, they had one one loss to Cincinnati. It was a double digit loss, but not by a lot. It was 11. It wasn't like they got embarrassed. But then you go back the year before, totally smashed by Clemson, crushed by Alabama. The year before that, in 2019, get just blown off the field by Michigan. And this is not the, you know, that was a Jim Harbaugh team, but it ain't the Michigan teams that have been beating Ohio State. They got they got crushed by Clemson the year before. And then the year before that, as I think a lot of people remember, they went and played a Miami team that wasn't that good. And Miami beat them by like 40 points. And they also got... <laughs> Manny Navarro and I were reminiscing about that last night. It just Mark Richt in Miami beat Notre Dame 41 to eight. And then the two programs went in complete opposite directions after that. No, you're right. And you know, what I wrote was though that at Notre Dame, he had, he realized he had hit his ceiling. And so when they would get blown out by an Alabama or Clemson, you would say, well, you know, that's just Notre Dame ceiling, right? They, they recruit very well, but they don't recruit like those teams. He's at LSU now because you can recruit like those teams and you can win national championships. And so I think that's why this was so jarring because it was another Brian Kelly lays an egg game in the first game of a season in which like last year, I didn't last year to me was, was 10 wins was a good accomplishment for that team. Right. But you expected them to take a step forward. Now we're sitting here dumping on out. Yeah. Comes into this a couple nights before the game, he goes on his radio show and goes, we're going to beat, go beat the heck out of Florida. State. All right. I was wondering where that came from. Uh, he was asked great. the Florida state players were asked about that afterward and they had no idea. And I had no idea. He said that on his radio show, huh? Yeah. Well, I guess it was Thursday night. So it was, that was not a great idea. No. And it's like, um, you know, 
don't go say that and then get blown off the field. So we're sitting here dumping on LSU a lot, but I want to talk about Florida State. Because I had, you know, I had them in the top 10. Um, I knew they were talented. But there's still a little part that, you know, they haven't done this in a while. They haven't reached this level in a while. Were they really there? After last night's performance, what do you think Florida State can accomplish this year? I think Florida State can go to the playoff, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, again, those three receivers, Johnny Wilson is a tight end size guy who runs like a receiver, a fast one, you know, and I feel like the, th- you know, they have good running backs. Their offensive line has got way better under Alex Atkins. Now, I think Mike Norvell has, is a really good offensive mind. And you saw some of those things. I think the thing, and they have edge rushers and they have athletes and speed. The, the one thing that you know, again, I watched that game. You saw it in the first half a little bit was, can they be buttoned up enough to get out of their own way at times, you know? And, and it goes back to what you said, like two minutes ago, it's, we haven't seen this in a while. Um, I think this is the best Florida state team since Jameis led them to a national title, but that was a national title team. Right. And that team, that, that team, not just on the field had a hard time getting out of its own way. Right. Um, college football is different now than the teams that, you know, that were going to be, you know, remember they beat Auburn and Auburn came out of nowhere to get there and it wasn't a playoff, you know, it wasn't like you didn't have to go quite the same, you know, climb as you will now to get through two playoff games. But I absolutely think watching this again, this is maybe a overreaction, but from what I saw last night, you know, barring some injuries. I think they have enough talent to, you could say they're a legit national title contender, like not just a playoff team. I mean, you know, the other teams that, that most people are expecting to be national title teams, you know, especially Georgia and Alabama um, and Ohio state, they all have new quarterbacks. Florida state has a guy who's played a lot and he's got really good weapons. Like if you ask me, Florida state's receivers, I don't want to say they're better than Ohio state's because I don't think they are that. But they're certainly better than Alabama's. And I think, you know, even with Brock Bowers, I think Florida State's receivers are as big a problem as Georgia's are. And their quarterbacks played a lot more. So, I don't know. Get, get on the Well, they've got, they've got, um, they're going to Clemson in week four. Win or lose, if they win that game, they, sh- they, sh- they should go 12-0. and 0. They are much more talented than every other team on their schedule. Now, I know teams lay an egg sometimes, but that, you you know, you, you just beat one, you beat the number five team in the country. Now, we should say, as of this recording, we haven't seen Clemson yet. That game is tonight against Duke. But, you know, you, you they're number nine in the country going into the season. You beat them. After that, it's Virginia Tech, Syracuse, Duke, Wake, Pitt, Miami, maybe, North Alabama, and Florida. Like, that's... You know that that to me that's like your 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 floor is eleven and one. So they're getting the playoff is very realistic. It's just a matter of once they get there, can they beat a Georgia? Can they beat an Alabama? Um, to be seen. But I mean, it was you know I covered back in the day a lot of great Florida State teams and like that? this. Yeah, I mean it was speed all over the field. You know, you mentioned the receivers, but I was just as impressed with the speed. And physicality on defense. A um, lot of great players out there playing at a very high level. Um, 
I thought credit was a to Mike Nor- a lot of credit goes to Mike Norvell. He, I mean, that program was a disaster when he took it over and then he had to take it over in the COVID season. And, you know, there were people that said he, that were going to ready to fire him halfway through his second season, but man, it just, he just kept, it's like, we just talked about Dion and flipping a roster overnight. This was more of your traditional three, four year rebuild, but with getting some really good guys out of the portal uh, to, to, you know, I think put them over the top. Yeah. Outside of Dion, I would say they worked the portal better than anybody. I mean, Jared verse is, has been a gold mine. He's a great player. I watched him on ACC network after the game. He's got a ton of personality. He's super sharp. Like he is a guy who, you know, if I'm Florida state, you know, I would love to have him be the face of the program right now. Um, and then obviously those receivers are really, really gifted. You look at uh, Braden Fisk is a disruptive defensive lineman who's going to play hard the whole time. You see, you see a lot of speed there. I mean, just again, I, I'm trying to not to overreact too much, but um, it's impossible not to overreact. We wouldn't have much of a podcast if we just sat here and said, yeah, let's wait and see. Yeah, let's wait and see. Uh, it's impossible not to get sucked in. Yeah. Let's overreact or not to the Pac-12. Pac-12, by the way, going undefeated and the SEC having three losses in the opening week. Pac-12 now has, so when you throw in USC's uh, week one or week zero win, uh, they're 13-0. and 0. They are, that is the most wins without a loss through week one of any FBS conference since at least 1980 per Jim Thornby at the Pac-12. Uh like I said, Saturday, their teams averaged 52.6 points per game. The only time in the last 40 years any FBS conference has had its teams average 50-plus points per game on a single day. And by the way, the next day, Oregon State went out and looked really good against San Jose State. Somebody might listen to this and say, oh, but they were playing a bunch of nobodies. Well, everybody was playing a bunch of nobodies, and and, and they didn't all win. Baylor lost to Texas State. Uh, you know, Purdue lost to Fresno State. Like, you're going to have a couple of those usually, and they did not. Look, we knew going into the season, we talked about it in at media days, the collection of quarterbacks in this conference is really good. And, you know, in addition to the obvious guy, I mean, Michael Penix threw five touchdowns in like a little over a half against Boise State, who is, maybe this was wrong, was our pick to be the group of five New Year's Six team. They, they clobbered them. So, you know about him, you know about Caleb, you know about Bo Nix, right? But... Now you throw Shador into the mix. Uh, Cam Ward at Washington State, a guy who was, you know, really buzzed about as a transfer, but but had a up and down year last year, um, had a great first game. And then in your backyard, um, Chip didn't start Dante Moore, the five-star freshman from Detroit. But he came in and I think uh, pretty, pretty quickly showed why he's going to be the guy there. So, oh, and DJ. Uh, DJ played very well outside of DJ was kind of, I don't want to call it a revelation, but DJ was in total control yesterday. And again, I don't think San Jose state's a bad team. I think they'll go win eight games and they have a really good quarterback and a good offense and Oregon state just hammered them. And DJ completed 80% of his passes accounted for five touchdowns. Um, you know, we talked about this because I spent some time with him in the spring. Like, you know, you're not, I guess we're not, you know, you're not supposed to root for, for, for people you cover. Um, I found DJ to be very 
compelling. I know probably a lot of Clemson fans didn't love what he said, but he was very candid. But he, um, man, he looked comfortable. And he didn't look comfortable last year. And there were times when he was at Clemson when he was really good. I think people are going to forget those. But, you know, that's a that's a top 25 team, right? I feel like a lot of people had written DJ off. And I'm not going to say he's going to be this year's Bo Nix in the Pac-12. But look at that league. Caleb aside, because I think people knew Caleb was a stud at OU and it was circumstance that, you know, he followed Lincoln. But, you know, Michael Penix Jr. was absolutely written off the way things ended at Indiana. Um, Bo Nix was written off from from Auburn. And DJ, to a lot of people, was written off. I mean, I think if I had asked you, do you think Aiden Child should be the starter based on not having ever seen him in person? I think just on your vibe, what would you have honestly said? Well, what I wrote and what I thought was, you know, DJ will get first crack, but at some point Aiden Childs will take over for him. And by the way, we were watching the end of that game in the uh, media dining room last night and Aiden Childs did come in and he looked good. He's good. But DJ looked fantastic. And, you know, he's it's his job until proven otherwise. So, look, you said we're not supposed to root for teams or people. But I'll just flat out say it. I'm rooting for Oregon State or Washington State to win the Pac-12, preferably an Oregon State-Washington State Pac-12 championship game. And the thing Oregon State has going for them, you know, we talk about all these these really good teams in the Pac-12. They don't play USC. And Oregon and Washington and I believe Utah are coming to Corvallis. So it's absolutely a scenario where they win the conference and maybe even go to the playoff. But it's not going to be easy. Uh, you know, I think, you know, what, I think what we saw though is, you know, you have an interesting, and I know it's, you can't really take this literally, but I saw San Jose state make a lot of big plays on offense against USC, Oregon state, not so much. I mean, Oregon state's got a great running game, Damian Martinez. They have a really good defense, which not a lot of the teams in Pac-12 can claim. Though I will say one of the pleasant surprises for the, in that conference like I said, Boise State is not a bad team. And last year, they had they developed this three-headed uh, rushing attack once they changed quarterbacks. Not only did Washington put up 56 on them, they, they, they shut that down. And that's a Washington defense that did not play well last year, for much of last year. So it's, uh, it's of course, ironic that the conference that's going out of business, uh, that, you know, just imploded over the summer, um, probably is about to have their best football season in a long, long time. Now you mentioned it and the flip side of that. Um, well, first of all, Baylor, Texas tech and TCU all went down in the big 12. Um, I thought the ACC had a really good weekend on back-to-back nights in the primetime neutral site games. UNC beat South Carolina, not entirely surprising. UNC had the number in front of them. Obviously much bigger surprise was Florida state blowing out LSU. What's unusual about that, and I looked it up, is the SEC almost always wins those big openers. This was the first time they had won every um, – they played generally about two or three games on opening weekend against ranked non-conference foes, and they had won every single one of them since 2017 uh, up until this weekend. A little bit of crack in the armor? I think um, – look, South Carolina – I'm not, I, I was not shocked that that happened. Um, Were you shocked that Utah handled Florida to the degree that they did without Cam Rising? 
No, you know what I was surprised about? Florida looked incredibly sloppy. Like, I think Billy Napier was a good hire. I am, after that, I was like, whoa, this is not Something's wrong. Yeah, just like so many mental mistakes. They were so, um, I don't want to say it was like, you know, they don't have talent. It was just a team that was really sloppy and and unfocused and shooting itself in the foot to have two players wearing number three on the field at the same time. What are we doing? Oh, and at one point they they had eight players on the field for a field goal block. I mean, they had a little bit of a disrupted week. They had to leave leave early because of the hurricane. But, I mean, that was a yeesh kind of performance. And Graham Mertz, you know, lived, lived was exactly what I thought might happen, right? They're trying to turn him into more of a running quarterback in that offense. But at the end of the day, the passing looked like it did at Wisconsin. So, do you still think I'm crazy to suggest they go 3-9? and nine? Um, No, I guess I don't. I mean, because I – they have to get better than that. Like that wasn't what Billy Napier's teams look like at, at Louisiana. I mean, now Grant, some of this, the staff's not the same, but nonetheless, I was like, geez, this just looked, you know, they ought to beat McNeese. But then as I'm looking at the rest of their schedule, I don't know. I mean, Charlotte's got some athletes. I watch, you know, I know that team a little bit. I mean, they should beat them. It's in, you know, it's in the swamp. But then all of a sudden, it's not like there's like easy, easy wins anywhere else, you know. Because the SEC East has gotten better. I mean, you know, Tennessee blew the heck out of Virginia, Joe Milton. Um, it was a disappointing performance for South Carolina, but I don't think they're going to be bad. I think Missouri could be better. So it it's a really bad look for Billy Napier because when if you recall, when he came in, one of his big things was he built this massive staff. And he came up with all these creative job titles. And then you got eight players on the field for a special teams play. Like, which of those 800 guys that you hired is in charge of making sure you have 11 players on the field? So, um, not a great look for him. What I think will be also worth keeping an eye on if this goes the way you think it's going to go, which right now it's, you know, three and nine. I mean, even if they're like, even if they're four and eight. Now, the one thing he's got going for him is he's got the number three recruiting class in the country right now. But if if the losses start to pile up, do some of those top recruits, I mean, he's got a couple of five stars, and they're also, by the way, out-of-state kids. Um, do those kids go, yeah, I'm not really buying in. This is going in the wrong direction. You know, if that's the part where if I'm a Florida fan, I'm most worried. I don't think it'll matter because in the SEC, at a program like Florida, they just don't put up with three and nine or four and eight. Like – the boosters will pass the hat around and that will be that. I mean, it's a huge buyout. How many, just, like, how many programs like that don't bring back three and nine, four and eight coaches? They just don't. How many, how many head coaching changes can Florida make? Yeah. Well, that's part of why they're where they're at. I mean, it's just been a constant churn since, since urban and, but you know, now look, it's, I'm not going to write them off after one game. Like if they get better and they, I think the key for them is they're going to have to beat. Even if, even if they end up, let's say six and six or five and seven, they got to beat a Tennessee or somebody like that an LSU to show that yeah, okay, it's not what we hoped it would be, but it's moving in the right direction. If Can they I lose just, all of those games, that's going to be a problem. Let me ask you this: so, just on Florida, uh, looking back, 
Um, Will Muschamp year three went four and eight. He got a year four. And, and he lost to Georgia Southern. But that was Jeremy Foley was the AD then. Okay, good point. The next year, Jim McElwain got off to a pretty good start. He won 10 his first, then nine. Then he won three, and they fired him before the year was over. Dan Mullen, Do you remember? Wait a minute. Do you remember the circumstances around that? I do. It was awkward as weird as hell. Yeah. Get it. And then Dan Mullen wins wins 22 in his first, 21 games in his first two years, but then eight and four. And then has a, has a, you know, they start falling apart in year four, and his recruiting's bad, and they fire him. So right. you can't kind of fire him after two years. You're, again, you're thinking rationally and logically. Heat of the moment. Uh, now really good. <laughs> yeah. It's, People panic, man. People panic, and money becomes no object, especially in that conference. Um, we only have a we only have about ten minutes left, and I, what I wanted to hit on was um, a lot of first time starting quarterbacks around the country at major programs this past weekend. Who impressed you the most? Uh, first time starting quarterbacks who impressed me the most? Drew Aller is my answer, um, and it's because. He's been, that's been the missing piece, right? After, after living through all those years of Sean Clifford, Penn State fans have been salivating at the idea of having an actual big time difference making quarterback to go with the great running backs and the great defense. And I know West Virginia is probably not very good, but he looked great. He really, he, he lived up to the hype on a primetime week one game. The receivers look good. Um, they actually didn't run the ball that well, but I don't, I would be shocked if that's a every week thing. So he's my first time starting QB of the week. I, I would have to say, even though it was like he started before, but never, not at this level and certainly not at this school. I, mean, I, I don't know how you wouldn't say Shador. I mean, uh, I wasn't counting him because he has started in, in college football before. Yeah. I mean, just, but you that, are allowed to say Jalen Milrow if you want, because he wasn't really the, the full-time starter last year, but he's yeah, one he's, game. So, the flip side of it was a shaky debut for Kyle McCord at Ohio State. And Ryan Day had made it seem like it was going to be both him and Devin Brown, but it really wasn't. Devin Brown just played a few snaps. And they just kind of slogged their way through that game against Indiana. Um, Tom Allen's a good defensive coach. Maybe they turn out to be a very good defensive team this year. But when you've got Marvin Harrison Jr. catching two passes for 18 yards... It's a little bit of a cause for an alarm, I think, in Columbus. And also, the other big question I had about Ohio State was they lost those two great offensive tackles. I, you know, sometimes it's the quarterback's fault, sometimes it's not. I looked, I don't have the exact number in front of me. We looked up the PFF grades for those two tackles. Not good. <laughs> not good at all. All right. We, uh, you want to do shout outs? Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's do. Who do you got? I've got the Texas State. Bobcats. Um, they've been really bad. For Remember Dennis Francioni was their coach for a couple years? Ooh. And he actually had them respectable. And then it's just been 2-10, and 3-9, and 4-8, whatever. Um, they took it to Baylor. They didn't just upset. They were 27.5 point underdog. They didn't just beat them. They won handily. Um, now, the notable thing there is uh, 51 new scholarship players, second most in the country to Colorado, which tells me that this thing that everybody was critical of this year, running off players, turning over your roster is going to now become the norm for coaches taking over bad teams. 
DJ Kenny's one to watch. He was a uh, he was kind of uh, creating some buzz behind the scenes, and obviously he's hit the ground running. That is a hell of a hell of a debut in San Marcos. Um, for me, it is going to be somebody in your backyard, Stu. My shout outs to David Bailey. Uh, David Bailey, mm-hmm. huge recruit for Stanford. That program, you know, has been in largely disarray. New coaching staff. They end up, you know, winning at Hawaii, which was. You know, it's a, any at this point for Stanford, any win is a good win. Four tackles for losses, three sacks. David Bailey is a guy everybody would have liked to have poached from Stanford. Um, he's a really good student. Obviously, he wouldn't have gotten into Stanford if he wasn't, but he stuck with it. He stayed there. Um, I, I think they're hoping that he can, because they've actually, they're not to the degree of Florida, but they're actually recruiting surprisingly well given all the tumult that was surrounding the cardinal program and it's how did you pronounce that word tumult tumult Tum- how else would you pronounce it hmm. tumult. tumult i'll have to look that up later i'm sure we'll hear anyway it, it came out of your mouth like t-o-o-m no it was a um <laughs> it was actually a really good weekend for the bay area school starting with the fact they got into the acc on friday um not being on Pacific time, I did not make it through the Stanford Hawaii game, but the part I did see it was Troy Taylor running the hurry up uh, spread offense, just like he planned to, and much much different than David Shaw days. They beat Hawaii, and then and we just mentioned Texas State. Well, the guy GJ Kinney replaced was Jake Spavital. Jake Spavital goes back to Cal as OC as he was under Sonny Dykes, and they put up fifty eight on North Texas. That was their most points since. His last stint as the OC in 2016. So, yeah, a rare rare moment of glory in my backyard. Remarkably good weekend for the Pac-12. Yeah, and again, the dream scenario, Oregon State or Washington State, but I think it's more likely Oregon State, goes to the playoff. I just don't want anybody to get left out. I mean, those two schools don't deserve to be sent packing to the Mountain West or whatever. So, Oregon State, let's say, goes to the playoff. And our man, Brett Yormark, who I saw in the press box the other day, goes back to ESPN Fox and says, hey, can you just throw in a little bit more and we're going to add two more teams? And then, you know, it all works out in the end. But that has, you know, I was been saying for many years, realignment has very little to do with performance on the field. And um, we'll leave it at that because I got to tell you, it was a cathartic weekend to watch football and not deal with conference realignment for once. There you go. All right. On that note, Stu, uh, send your questions. We'll hopefully get to a few of them later this week on our next Not episode. hopefully. We will get to them in our second episode of the week. That's how it's going to be this season. So, yeah, send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. See you next time. How did we get away with the things we used to do?